So when was the last time you finished something? When was the last time you got something done? You got through something? Did you finish anything this year? Maybe you're finished second grade, or you're going to finish fourth grade, and next year you're going to be a fifth grader. Maybe you're going to finish high school, or you're almost getting ready to finish college or grad school. I put four kids through college, and when my son, my youngest son graduated, we threw him a party, which was great. But I kept thinking, where's my party? I put four kids through college. I need a party. I finished something. Maybe you finished an assignment. Maybe you were pregnant and you delivered a baby. That's finishing something. Congratulations. You have all lived through a year of COVID. You finished that. As my Jewish friends on Long Island would say, where we used to live, mazel tov. Congratulations. You finished. What do you feel when you finish? You finish something. It could be something small. It could be just cleaning up after dinner, or it could be something really big. You feel relief, you feel satisfaction, you feel joy, you feel delight. And if it's a really big thing, you throw a party or you shout and you say, like, let's say you finish a marathon, you cross the finish line, I finished. Here's this word from Jesus at the cross. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? It is finished. It's actually in the original language of Greek that St. John wrote in. It's one word. Tetelestai. One word which means it's all done. It wasn't necessarily like a religious word. It wasn't like just religious people used it. It was, a, it was actually a business word. It was used in the marketplace. So when somebody finished um, uh, a contract, when a contract was over, or when someone finished paying for a building, it would put on the deed, tetelestai. It is finished. It's done. It is now changed. And notice that Jesus said, not, I think it's finished. Oh, wow, I hope it's finished. He said, it is finished emphatic. Now here, a couple interesting things about this word. It's in the present tense, which means something that happened in the past that has ongoing implications and application and power and experience. So let me give you an example. We used to live in Barnum, Minnesota for 10 years when I was the first pastor, my first pastorate. Um, town of 460 people, and one of the heroes, the two of the heroes of that town were the Finnefrocks. Willis Finnefrock, who was a furnace repairman, the best furnace repairman you could find anywhere in the world, I guarantee it, and Kay Finnefrock, multiple roles, but an amazing cook. They lived on a farm six miles east of town on County Road 6, and so we would go out there many Sundays for an old-fashioned farm dinner. Kay would make um, home-raised um, beef for dinner, entirely organic, of course, because it was raised on their farm. We'd have uh, corn on the cob that just they could go out and pick the corn on the cob, homemade rolls, um, homemade gravy, 
um, all kinds of stuff. And then usually three kinds of pies. So when Kay said, dinner is ready, it is finished, that's kind of like the word that Jesus is using here. It's done. It's ready. I did all the work. There's nothing to add to it. Now you can enjoy it. You get to experience it. So that's what Jesus is saying when he says, it is finished. It's also singular. And I'll, we'll see why all these things matter as we get into this. It's singular, which means it is one thing was finished. Jesus is saying, when I died on the cross, there wasn't just a whole bunch of things. There was one big thing with many implications. So I want to look at one of those implications tonight. Specifically, what this Gospel of John starts with in chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the road, John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is definitely part, a huge facet of what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Now, we're going to see sin is global. Sin is structural. Sin is also very personal. Seems like there's been these debates in the church where somebody, some people say, well, that sin isn't structural. And then some people say, well, sin is almost all just structural. And it's, in the Bible, it's both. It's, it's structural. You can't, can't read the Old Testament prophets without seeing structural sin, structural injustice. But on the other hand, you can't read through the Bible and, and say it's not personal. It's not about me and my individual sins and what I bring that contributes to this structural sin. So that one word, it is finished. When we realize what Jesus meant when he said that and who was speaking that word, who was Jesus? Who was the guy that cried this from the cross? And what was he doing? That is a word that I believe can set us free, can literally change the course of our life tonight. When you take that into yourself, when you sit down at the dinner that he's prepared and start to enjoy it like Grandma Kay, that will change your life. It'll change what you're building your life on. So if Jesus has set us free from sin, if he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what is sin? And why is it so bad? And why all that pain and agony? And why get strung up on a Roman cross for that? Is it really that bad? Is it really that uncorrectable. Well, in John chapter 18 and 19, that, that long passage that you just heard read, and I'm going to actually back up and include the other, other chapter, chapter 18, what we see is vignette after vignette or case study after case study of what sin looks like and why it is so ugly and painful, and dehumanizing to us personally and to others around us. So in John chapter 18 through 19, we see people failing, compromising, knowing the right thing but not doing it, people treating each other with cruelty, 
people ignoring what is right, people committing acts of injustice, people committing acts of relationship uh, disintegration. Let me give you six vignettes, just quick vignettes. First, there's Peter. Peter, Jesus's main man, who in every gospel assures Jesus in front of all of his best friends, Jesus, these guys will bail on you. You cannot count on them. They are unreliable. They are unstable. But you can count on me. I will not fail you. I will be there for you. I will stand beside you. When you say, I need somebody to stand by me, that's me. Where do we see Peter in this passage? Well, here's something that the gospel writer John does something really interesting. So chapter 18, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Otherwise, I'll read it to you. So there, Jesus has been taken captive now. He's on trial. And chapter 18, verse 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And then if you flip over to chapter 18, verse 25, says almost the, exactly the same thing. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So what's he doing? Two times, we're told. The world around him is imploding. Jesus is being dragged into darkness. Jesus is being hauled off and arrested. He's being treated unfairly. He's strung up on bogus charges. If anybody needed a friend, it's Jesus. And what is Peter doing? Oh, I'm kind of cold and uh, I'm a little scared. I just need, I just want to stand and warm myself by this fire. Peter is taking care of Peter. Peter is worried about Peter more than anybody else. As much as he didn't want this to happen, this force of his self-centeredness just sucks him in. That's Peter. Then there's the disciples, the other disciples. The question I want to ask in this passage, chapter 18 and 19, is where are they? Where are they? They're nowhere. They're not even in this passage. They are completely unpresent. They've completely bailed on Jesus. There's a character in Wendell Berry's novel, um, Jaber Crow, a character named Roy. And here's how Wendell Berry describes this fictional character. Roy was never on the attack. He was merely not present. When the pressure was on, Roy eased away. He was not by nature, a man who was very much in evidence. So here's this guy, Roy. He's a nice guy, one of the nicest guys in town. But he doesn't know how to be present to people in pain and suffering and people who need his courage. That's the disciples. Vignette number three, the soldiers. What about them? You say, well, they're cruel, right? Well, on one hand, they're just doing their jobs, right? This is what they're told. This is their jobs. They take care of condemned criminals, people that the system has condemned. 
people of the system has tried, people of the system has sent off. And so I guess just I got to make a living, right? They never question if what they're involved in, what they're wrapped up in, the system that they're a part of is unjust, is cruel, is inhumane, is dehumanizing. They just do their job. And in the process, they shut their hearts. They close their hearts to the injustice that's all around them. Then there's the crowds. You heard, we were the crowds, right? You, you and I, we were crucifying, crucifying. The church does that on Good Friday because it's as if to say, look, if I was there, if you were there, we were part of that crowd, we probably would have done exactly the same thing. It's the frenzy of the mob, the frenzy of outrage. And you know what? We think, well, we're not that cruel. Oh, no, now we can just sit at our desk and click a few keys, and we got an instant mob canceling people, ruining people's lives. And one thing, I'm not like a super history buff, but I've read enough to know of the 20th century that the 20th century, there were ideologies on the right, ideologies on the left that led to mob frenzies that destroyed millions of people. Auschwitz, the gulags, the Armenian genocide, the killing fields of Cambodia, the list goes on and on. That's the mob, the power of the mob. This gets a little depressing, so just two more. The religious leaders, chapter 19, verse 7. These are the people who are people that represent God. We have a law, they say, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself out to be the son of God. Now let me just say something really important here because when the gospel writer John uses the phrase the Jews, which he does over 50 times, it, means, it can mean three different things. And this is really important because in the history of the world and actually in the history of the church, some people have used this to commit acts of atrocities, anti-Semitic acts against our Jewish neighbors. So it's really important. And some people have used the Gospel of John as justification for that. So it could be used in one of three ways. So Jews was first, it could be used for all Jewish people, anybody that's a Jew. Sometimes John uses it that way. It could be used for people that come from a certain geographical region where there are a lot of Jews. And sometimes, like in this passion narrative, the Jews refers to a small, very small, but powerful group of religious leaders who were hostile to Jesus and his message. It's really important for us to read the Bible that way, to understand the nuances in which John uses that word. So he is using it as the most religious people, the people who were called to lead their people to bless, to be a blessing through them to the world. And instead, religion has become a club to club other people. Finally, there's one more, one more vignette, Pilate. He is, in some ways, he's the most interesting to me. Because throughout this whole narrative, Pilate knows what the right thing is. He knows what he's supposed to do. And he, he tries to like 
he, he just kind of like goes back and forth. It's like, well, I don't think he's guilty. I do. I think he's innocent. I think I should release him. But then there's all this pressure from people over here, and he keeps trying to negotiate, and he tries to find a, a workable solution, and then they get him. They get him in his weak spot, his soft spot, his vulnerable spot. You know what it is? Chapter 19, verse 12. This is where they get him. And it says, it says, um, he, sa he says, if you do this, you will not be Caesar's friend. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And he crumbles. He can't handle that. What? I'm not going to be Caesar's friend? I mean, he's like a little boy. Just like, I, I'm not going to be Caesar's friend? Oh, no. I can't live if I'm not Caesar's friend. That's like, I'm in the inner ring. I'm one of the cool guys. And now to be outside of that inner ring, I just, I can't handle that. He wants to be admired. He wants to be liked. He wants to be like a bull. He wants to share the power with Caesar. He wants to be on that team. And that's what causes him to crumble. He's trapped by his own sin. You know, in the Bible, sin is not just bad things we do. Read the book of Romans. It's also a power that entraps us, that puts us in a cage. It's chains that lock us up. And so Pilate caves. It's kind of it's funny and, and pathetic and tragic all at the same time. Later in the story, they want him to change the sign. And Pilate goes, what I've written, I've written. Okay? Now I'm a tough guy again. I, I, I'm not going to change my mind again. So he's completely caved. He's completely given in to his ambition and his popularity, but he tries to take one last stand. There's a, this is going to date me a little bit, but um, that's okay. So I, this was, song was written when I was really young. But there's a song written by um, Bob Dylan called Who Be More? And it's a true story. It's based on a true story of a boxer named Davy Moore who was actually died in a boxing match. And Bob Dylan sings this song, and through each chorus, he goes through the chorus, and he, he says, Who killed Davy Moore? This is the chorus. Who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? And then it goes through like six verses, and I won't read them all to you, but it says, it goes, like each verse goes, not I, says the referee, don't point your finger at me. Not us, says the angry crowd, whose screams filled the arena loud. Not me, says his manager, puffing on a big cigar. Not me, says the gambling man, with his ticket stub still in his hand. Not me, says the boxing sports writer, pounding print on his old typewriter. Not me, says the man whose fists laid him mist. Don't say murder. Don't say kill. It was, it was destiny. It was God's will. And then the chorus, who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? So the whole song is nobody's responsible. 
nobody owns up. This is one of the greatest, uh, seriously, one of the greatest philosophical, anthropological mysteries of my life that I see over and over again. It's like, yeah, well, do you think the world's like in a great place? Oh, there's a lot of problems in the world. But nobody's responsible. It's nobody's fault. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. Everybody's part of the problem, but nobody's responsible. So here's this tangled mess of humanity in the brokenness of sin. I mean, it's a mess. That's the passion narrative. Vignette after vignette after vignette of human beings failing to live up to our Imago Dei image of God calling. Where is Jesus? It's almost easy to lose him in the midst of this because it's so dark. It's so bad. Where's Jesus? Where is the Son of God? Back in the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus is the one who was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. In him was life. His life was the light of men. He was the true light. He's the word who became flesh. So where is he? Here he is. He is the Lamb of God, taking upon himself the sins of the world. He is the one who is being crucified between two sinners. In all four Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as dying between two other criminals. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said that this messianic figure, this suffering servant, would be numbered with transgressors. So here he is on the cross. He's being numbered with transgressors. Chapter 19, verses 16. So they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. In the Gospel of Luke, they're called criminals. In John, they're just called others. What a, what a name. It's just like, it's just broken, fallen humanity at its worst. Others. And there he is right in the midst of them. What's he doing? He's walking into the depths of human sin to be with us. He said he was God made flesh, walked among us. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, he tabernacled among us. He moved into our neighborhood well, he doesn't just move into the best parts of our neighborhood. He moves into the worst parts of our neighborhood. The worst parts of injustice, the worst parts of failure, the worst parts of human depravity, the worst parts of our sin, the things that we're most ashamed of, we most want to hide from people, that we most struggle with. He's descending into that, crucified, numbered with the transgressors. What does Jesus want to do tonight on Good Friday? Church is the night. Well, we do this every Sunday, but especially on Good Friday, we remember that Christ 
wants to save sinners. Real sinners. I'm afraid sometimes in the church, and I, I've been around, I've been a pastor for almost 30 years, and, and I'm guilty of this too. I'm as guilty as anybody. I think sometimes we want to be sinners, but respectable sinners. You know what I mean? I'm not a really bad sinner. I'm a, I'm a sinner, but I'm a semi-respectable sinner. I have respectable sins. I don't have really bad sins. I mean, there's people that have really bad sins, but I'm not one of those people. Jesus didn't come to save respectable sinners. He came to save real sinners. People like Peter that go AWOL on Jesus. People like the disciples who don't know how to be present, keep escaping. People like the soldiers who want to blind their eyes to injustice. People like the crowds who get caught up in frenzy of outrage and anger. People like the religious leaders who even use religion to hide. People like Pilate who are so into ambition and power and likability that they can't see the Son of God right in front of them. I don't know about you, but sometimes one of the things I struggle with, I'll put it this way. I just feel so unfinished. You know, I've been a Christian for like, I've been following Jesus for like 45 years. I feel like, praise God, I've made some progress, but I am just so unfinished. And sometimes it just kind of blares out of me. It just kind of pops out of me. Here's one of the um, most beautiful verses in the Bible. What uh, the theologian Fleming Rutledge calls one of the most irreligious verses in the Bible, because this is like not the way religion really works. Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Religion is all about the godly, right? It's all about blessing godly people, being godly, becoming godly, earning godliness. Christ died for the ungodly. The the glaringly unfinished people. There's where this one word comes in that I said can change the course of your life, change the foundation of your life. It is finished. Tetelestai. It's done. It's paid for. You know, we have a lot of words. Our world is just so wordy. And maybe the word you speak to yourself is a word like maybe your word is achieve. Achieve, achieve, achieve. Or it's work, work, work. Or produce, produce, produce. Or better, better, better. Or impress, impress, impress. And it makes us so anxious and lonely and isolated. Jesus has a better word. It is finished. It is done. It is paid in full. It is beautifully, gloriously finished. 
and you can be right with God the Father, and you can be loved, and you can rest in that, and you can enjoy it, and that can start right now. I got this image. One of my favorite paintings is um, Rembrandt's Prodigal Son. I have it in my living room, and uh, someday I'd love to go see it in St. Petersburg. It's apparently, uh, if I got my facts right, it's eight and a half feet by 11 and a half feet. Wow, that is just like huge. So I imagine standing before Rembrandt, you know, say, say you're standing before the painting with your spouse or with a friend, maybe with your mom or dad, and you're staring at it, and you pull out a crayon and you break through the barrier and you start like coloring on it. And somebody says, what are you doing? And you say, well, I just thought I could just maybe just like enhance it a little bit, you know? I just, I just see like the way Rembrandt used the light a little bit here and the way the reds and the browns, it's just a little, I, think, I just thought I could give it a little better contrast and, and I just thought I could make Rembrandt a little more Rembrandt-ish. Are you crazy? You don't, you don't do that. You're, you're, your only role is to sit and stand and gaze and wonder and be awed and be grateful that there is an, there was an artist on this earth who was that talented and that gifted and could make something that beautiful. You don't add to the work of Jesus. You don't help him. You can't improve upon it. You just gaze, and you're in awe, and you say, thank you. And you hear the Lord say, take and eat, given for you. Does that mean we do nothing? No, of course not. The whole Christian life, everything you do, coming to worship, giving of your money, serving the poor, sharing the gospel, working for justice for the vulnerable and the marginalized, pursuing sexual wholeness, doing your job well, developing your, relation, your prayer life. Everything flows from tetelestai. Everything flows from that. Everything is connected to that. It's the source of everything that comes out of you. Remember, remember Grandma Kay? Grandma Kay Finnefrock? Dinner is ready. It's done. It's finished. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.